Welcome to the second part of this three-part interview. Let the chains of Who's Round shatter. Well, look, we're 50 minutes into the interview and I have held off and I held off over lunch. Um, and you've, you've tried to bring it into the conversation a couple of times. What's that? The Curse of Fenric. Oh, OK. Uh, which, I wasn't trying to. Just which, drawing no, parallels ab- between ab- the two. And absolutely. But I, I, see, think I, I read I, both I, sets of scripts yesterday, yes. so they're both in my mind and I can see the similarities and the differences between Well, well them. I think I've cut you off because I've, mm. I've tried to be objective. Mm. Um, but this whole interview was set up actually from an email to Andrew Cartmel where I was watching <laughs> The Curse of Fenric the other day. The Curse of Fenric is, is one of Doctor Who's finest hours. Discuss. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's terrific. I'll tell you something. There was a, a few years back, but in, in the modern era of, of Doctor Who, the, the rebooted Who, um, someone pointed out to me that um, I think it was the Daily Telegraph had done the top 10 or tw- top 20 or something like greatest Doctor Who stories of all time or something like that. And um, this friend said yours was number six or something. And I, I thought about it and I said, why was it number six? Why, <laughs> why wasn't it number five or number seven or number 16 or number 56? You know, how does one say sure. that Fenric was number six? Um, presumably they had some scoring system or something like that. I, I, can't, I can't judge it like that because I wrote it. Sure. Um, However, given that some people do say that they like it a lot, I can see, I think I can explain a couple of reasons why that is, and they're variations on the same reason. One is, as I've said, that it's um, tonally more cohesive as a script than Dragonfire was. This... The, the image that I started with is there in the final produced piece. I started with an image, actually it was of bombs falling out of the sky. We ended up with bombs stockpiled. Nothing changed about that. That, that was the story from beginning to end. Um, we, we defied the, the laws of physics uh, that story was not rejected, it simply developed and, and grew. Everything else that, that happened was kind of something that grew out of it. Um, I think the sequence off the top of my head was probably something like, going to do a story in World War II, I didn't want to set it, actually I know that, I, didn't want, I wanted it to be during the Blitz originally, with the bombs falling out of the sky. Um, but then, very quickly, I thought, I don't want it to be in London because um, I'm a bit impatient with London-centric and Southeast-centric stories. Uh, so I was thinking Coventry during the Blitz. But then we thought about, well, how about it's not actually during you know, kind of a bombing raid. It's a different part of this story. It's, it's when the bombs are being made uh, and... And it draws in a lot of things that were well, interesting me then, interest me now. Um, 
I come from Yorkshire, so the idea of taking it to a remote part of Yorkshire interested me. Um, we pushed it to the coast because that gave more possibilities, um, having a coastal location. Uh, uh, I, I, I was telling you that in the, um, Dragonfire, I wrote on word processor, but the BBC didn't use them still. Uh, I, I knew a lot about computers in those days, despite having done drama university. Andrew <laughs> knew a lot about computers. So the, the early days of computing interested me. Uh, and and how that emerged during the Second World War as code breaking. Um, so it, it was it was cohesive in the way. And also, once we'd pushed it to the the Yorkshire coast, then the idea of vampires came in because that's where Dracula, Dracula came sure. ashore yep. uh, at Whitby. Um, logically, having set it um, on the North Yorkshire coast, it was all shot in Lulworth. Bay, Lowell Cove, yeah. and, yeah. Cove and um, uh, a military camp in the, the south of England. Um, but that was because when Andrew said that he wanted a, a story which um, was historical but had to be shot within 25 miles of London, so you know, I was trying to keep it in, in a way that, okay, we. We can shoot in the Thames Estuary or something like that, and that'll double for the North Yorkshire coast. Uh, but then, this is this is John. Uh, um, John agreed. In fact, it might even been John who suggested. Um, but he certainly agreed to the idea of shooting the whole thing on location and finding the budget for it. Uh, I, I think I think he he took the contingency for the series and just put it into. But it works, and it's interesting. And I don't even know what this question is. We've talked about mm. nomenclature before, and with your Germanic influences with Dragonfire. Mm. I think the fact you do a World War II story mm. with Russians instead of Germans... It was, it to was me, Germans to begin with. Well, it, the, the fact it was Russians, mm. to me, made it amazing, yes. and really made it... Yeah. And I, funny enough, I was doing Chekhov at uh, <laughs> A-level, and of course everybody all is named, all of, of the characters <laughs> have names from Chekhov yeah. plays. But that gave it a verisimilitude mm. that I don't think it would have had had it been Germans. Mm. And I don't know why that is. Do you know why that is? I think it's... Um, I think it, the law of John Brain... You know John Brain, the novelist who wrote Room at the Top. Yeah. Um, he wrote uh, a book on kind of how to write a novel or something like that. And he said in it, it's not so much how to write a novel, it's, uh, it's more a tour of my workshop. But one of the things he, he said in it uh, was every story has a point of probability in it, a point of improbability in it, but only one point of improbability. And everything else kind of flows from that one point of improbability. I think that once you, if 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 you have, I think there are quite a few points of improbability actually in, in Fenric, but once you accept something fairly small, then other things seem quite natural. People, characters can then do really extreme things once you've accepted that they will behave foolishly in this this one way. And as a writer, I have 
a preference for getting off the beaten track. I don't like predictable stories, partly because I don't like things that I find predictable. I like, I like to be surprised. Sure. And that story had German um, commandos coming ashore to begin with, and it was, it was Germans throughout um, in, in the, the story development sequence uh, before I started writing the script. But then at some point, I can't remember how, I obviously just thought, not Germans, Russians. And I think that's the making of it, really. I, I think, I think, at the time I was writing, if you, if you, if you kind of take the point of view that anything that any writer writes is suffused with what's going on around them at the time, um, I was... I knew Scandinavia, obviously. Um, in fact, the day after we finished um, Dragonfire in the studio, I, I can remember uh, I, I left fairly early because you know, I got away fairly early from the, the rap party because um, I was going to Sweden the next day on holiday. Um, so I was using Scandinavia there. But the thing about Sweden back then, which was during the Cold War, is that Sweden was a neutral country. It was one of only two neutral countries in Europe. Switzerland and Sweden were both neutral. And so um, people from the Iron Curtain were, were allowed to travel there. And so when I'd been travelling in Sweden, I'd met a lot of people from what were then Iron Curtain countries and kind of chatted with them, got, got to know a bit about uh, where they came from. Um, and so this, this idea that, in a way, I could be consorting with the enemy, and yet we were finding each other the same, the, you know, we were the same. same absolutely. You yeah. know, kind of young people travelling in Sweden, as it were, travelling abroad. Um, and at the same time, <coughs> the Iron Curtain was beginning to crumble. Um, Perestroika and Glasnost were kind of beginning to happen in, in the East. And I think it was probably that that gave me the idea, th th this idea of... Uh, I mean, uh, Captain Judson, uh, sorry, Commander Judson, has a line that I still like in it. Um, uh, you know your problem, you don't know who the enemy is. A traitor is someone, someone who, who doesn't, doesn't know who, who the, the enemy, enemy is. is. Yeah. And then again, he has a line, some, some, he says something about shooting. Is it, who are they? He's, he's, and he says, British, Germans, Russian, they're enemy, shoot them. You know, they, this idea that there is a mindset of, if you don't know who the enemy is, you're a traitor. Yeah. You need to know who the enemy is, and we know who the enemy is. But at that time, it was a marriage of convenience between um, you know, the, the, the British and the Americans and uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, if, you know, if Hitler hadn't decided to open the Second Front and try and march on Stalingrad, he would, sure. have, he would have won the Second World War. Yeah. Um, so it, it was, it's just this idea that, that, that appealed to me, that a, a, attracted me of they're not Germans, they're Russians, they're people who 
ought to be on our side, but are they on our side? It creates kind of shifting sands underneath all of the relationships. Uh, and even without following that through, obviously that's fertile ground for, for characters and story and scenes and, and the drama of the piece. And you've got to another thing that was kind of amazing at the time that is not obvious looking back unless you were alive at the time and remember this, is that as, as Fenwick was actually being broadcast, the Berlin Wall was coming down. It was, it was either the day after episode three or two days after, I can't remember which. But it, it, was, it was like the boundary between fiction and reality had shattered. The chains yeah. of Frederick had shattered. You know that, that that what was happening in the story about can we tell the difference between um, who we believe to be an enemy and who is really an enemy was was happening in reality in ex in exactly the same geography of Eastern Europe and, and, and Western Europe, uh, and that was that was kind of exciting. Yeah. I, 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 was, I was excited to to feel that. Somehow, in some strange way, a story which had been written... Well, the first idea for the story was... It was at least 12 months earlier, possibly slightly more than 12 months earlier, uh, and yet, 12 months later, reality happens just, just coincides with it. OK, really geeky question now, because mm. we've done some of the... Oh, this will be the one that I can't answer because you'll probably know the answers better than I do. Well, I don't know. Um, there are people is... who know me better than I know myself. Literally, <laughs> well, the there are people. That's the thing about doctors 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 who studied me. They've, they've written. They've written MA theses on me. Well, Sergeant Prozorov uh, is named after a Chekhov character, mm. uh, but in the book you call him Sergeant um, Trofimov. Uh, which is another Chekhov name. <laughs> so why did you change the name? I can't remember, actually. Um, but they're both Chekhov names, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they are. Um, it, it would have been for one of two reasons. Again, variations on the same thing. Either I thought that in print, Prozorov didn't look terribly good and Trofimov would, would look more distinctive because... It's like when you can see a character, you know which ones they are. Sure. When I'm reading my scripts, um, I, I, even I can't remember the characters' names, and I give them their names. Uh, for a long time, they were just known as Russian commandos, and a Russian commander does this, another Russian commander does that. And even when I gave them names, uh, Andrew would be kind of saying, well, what about so-and-so does this? And I'd say, use that. <laughs> <laughs> That's in, that, that surprises me because I think your characters are so well drawn and your mm. incidental characters have more of a backstory than most incidental but characters. But that's it. That do, I, I, I have difficulty remembering real people's names. Um, and I don't forget people, but it's like the name is simply a label that attaches to the person. Right. And the label drops off quite easily. But the character, the human being, I do remember. I remember absolutely. I can, I can meet people and remember things about them that you know, we talked about once a long time ago and I'm still going, oh sorry I've forgotten your name, who are you? Right. Um, so I, I do the same with, with characters' names um, and 
I mean, maybe I felt that Prozorov hadn't stuck with me enough and that Trofimov felt a bit, uh, a, a bit more appropriate. But it would either be to do with the sound of the name or the look of the name or something like that, that I, I was just looking for uh, a variation on it. So I, I turned to check off again. I'd, I'd forgotten, I'd completely forgotten that I'd changed the name These of the character. For, me, you know, see. <laughs> I, I know, I, I, I do it just innocently thinking. I can do this, not realising that it's, so, it's, it's, it's breaking... 20, 30 years later. It's, it's breaking the fabric of time <laughs> and space for people. Um, and what about, because you, would, you, you alluded over lunch that you, mm. you'd spent some time on, on, the, on the set of... Well, it wasn't a set, but... Uh, um, on the location. The location of, yeah. of, of Fenric. So Nicholas Mallet, interesting. Uh, he directed two Doc Two stories prior to that. He was really nice. He, really nice, quiet. Um, I can quite believe that being able to do a, a single camera shoot, maybe that liberated him in a way. Uh, maybe that gave him more control over each individual shot. Um, we shot a feature film in 14 shooting days or something like that. Um, it was... It was insane. It was absolutely insane. It was like Fenric had burst out. I mean, I wrote it to be shot in summer, and it was shot. It was brought forward and shot in April, and unaccountably we had snow in April, and that was as soon as we arrived. As soon as we arrived there, we were shooting indoors in the huts, and there was snow. There was blizzards outside. Second morning, we, we all woke up to a complete whiteout. Um, and obviously we couldn't have snow for continuity. So when we started shooting outside, they had to hose down all the snow to get rid of the snow, which meant that it was all muddy and rain and melting snow anyway turned the bottom end of the shooting site into a complete mud bath. Um, that, because it was so impossible to do, it, it really was a kind of a wartime spirit. You know, mm -hmm. Everybody had to push themselves to the limit to make it work. Uh, we, we did end up at one point with three units shooting simultaneously. Um, there was Nick with, with the, the main unit. There was some underwater photography needed doing so. Uh, John went out and did that photography and there were still some close-ups hadn't been finished in the, the hut we just left so I did those so wow so you were the third unit director close-ups of hands <laughs> and ticker tape that's me <laughs> I think you'll find that the lighting on them is particularly impressive <laughs> <laughs> and my, 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 my film theory background really shone <laughs> but it, it, it was insane it really was insane um, and that, I think that helped make it as a programme because everyone, you know, there really wasn't any room for any ego. If, if there had been any ego on that programme, it certainly wasn't able to, sure. to, 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 to come out. You know, people just had to work so hard, so hard to get it done. It was, it was unbelievable what, what people went through. The two Joannes. Oh, yes, Joanne Kenny Joans, and Joanne Bell, yeah. 
the, the, the two virgins, as we called them. <laughs> can I say that now, all these years? I think you uh, can. Yeah. Um, um, I think it must have been... That's the Gene and Phyllis, by the way. Yeah, sorry, time. yes. Um, I, I think it must have been the final day of shooting or something, and they were out there in the sea, bitterly cold. It was... It was and they say it's warm in the yes, water, and you go, it, it really doesn't look like it. It's not. <laughs> and, and the thing is that because we were shooting so fast, in any other shoot, you know, we'd have done 30 seconds and then come out, warm up for three hours, and then go back in for another 30 seconds. We couldn't do that. We really couldn't do that. Um, there was some amazing stuff went on in, in the water. There was the, the haemovores. Oh, there's another one who died. Tip. tip Crip tipping. tipping. Yeah, great stuntman. Wonderful. Excellent stuntman. Oh, God, he's dancing. Anyway, different story. But um, Well, no, tell us about it. No, he's dancing. Was, he, he looked like a lunatic. In, in the, um, the, the unit hotel, there was a jukebox or something, and so people would start dancing to it. And they, tip, tip, tip was on a different planet, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> but... There was one bit where the bit where the haemovores emerge from the water, yeah, great which, which means they all have to go under the water first, and um, one of them can't get under the water because he's not very heavy as a human being inside the thing, and there's air bubbles in it, and it just keeps floating. He can't disappear under the water, um, and so people are shouting, "I need to do this and do that and do the other," and eventually. Tip tipping just picks up this boulder. <laughs> it's, about, it's about twice his size because he's an ex-marine, and he staggers into the water with this, gives it to this actor who promptly disappears <laughs> under the water. <laughs> Roll camera. He lets go of it. They all appear out of the water. <laughs> there was that. There was another bit um, where. The, the haemovores were out in the water, or maybe it was one of the Joannes, Some, somebody was out in the water, and there was some makeup and he got kind of splashed or something, or gone awry in some way. Um, and and uh, Dee Barron, who's the, the makeup designer, yeah. she's got Wellingtons, so you know they, they, they come to, they would come into the shallow bits, she'd go out, she'd fix it, they'd go back out again. Um, and again, we, we push for time, we push for time, we push for time, we push for time, always push for time on this shoot. And um, this needs doing, and they're a bit far out, and, and someone says, um, oh, I need sorting, makeup needs sorting. And Dee goes, oh, fuck it, and just strides out into the water, never mind the Wellingtons. She's there in her ordinary <laughs> clothes, just getting soaked to get the, the, the makeup sorted. People were doing that. People were. were Putting them, they were pushing themselves. They, they were you know, beyond the call of duty. Uh, so some of these people get credited in the programme, you know, the, the credits at the end. There's a lot of people got no credit at all. You know, kind of grips and people like that, um, who were kind of they were working. You know, while, while we were shooting in, uh, inside, they were outside in the snow, in the mud, setting everything up, getting the lights ready. For the next scene, you know, they, they were really, really. I, I cannot speak too highly of, of every single person who, who worked on the, the Curse of Henry. I, I think it's because your your scripts are very rich with backstory, is why I, mm. you know, I would normally have 
finished an interview about an hour ago. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really interested. We can in... talk for the scripts longer than the scripts <laughs> themselves <Maybe>. last. <laughs> a lot, a lot of the plot of Fenric isn't explained, um, and that's <laughs> that's partly because we shot so much and <laughs> bits had to be cut. But in, in that final episode. I remember, and, and, and I know, there's, there's a huge amount of rushing around and it cuts from this place to that place and that, you know, once the storm has broken and hell is let loose, yeah. um, it, the, the scenes become chaotic. And that was, that was, that was, it was deliberate, it was intentional on my part because I, I kind of took the view that if I knew what was happening, then it would make it, it would make story sense, even if I hadn't explained what was happening. How, how can I explain this better? It's kind of like if if the story is true, you only have to tell bits of it, and the bits that you see will will link together. Whereas if the story isn't true, if you're just telling scene A and then scene D and then scene G and you haven't even thought about B and C and E and F in between, those scenes won't make any sense. But if you, if you have worked out scenes B and C and E and F and then just don't show those, the scenes that you do show, at some intuitive level, will make sense to the audience. Even if it seems confusing, I think I was at least partially successful in that because um, people have told me since that it was confusing. They were confused. But every single scene, I knew how the characters had physically got from the place they were before to the place they are now. Uh, I don't think I've, I've got it any longer, but I, I had written down, you know, once they escape from this hut, they get out that way, the other hut is over there, they can't get in through the, the door because of such and such, they're climbing through the windows, so that means they're at that end of that hut. So when we then go to them at that end of that hut, I, I thought, I, I don't need to show them escaping, running across, trying the door, they can't get in the door, they're getting... I've worked all that out. That, that's, all, that's already established as part of the story anyway, that this is happening, that's happening. Um, and I think the same is true of characters, that even if I don't show the other bits of their lives, the reason, even if I don't even say why it, it, it happened or what happened, as, as long as I know what the backstory is, I'm going to write dialogue and action which is consistent with that and that means that every single scene that they appear in, every single action they take, every single word they utter is going to be consistent with what's happened in their past which then gives that character a continuity it makes in some way to the audience the character, the character is consistent from scene to scene um, you filled it's, some of that in with the book, so how was how how hmm. was it writing the novels of your stories? And by the way, I don't know if you know this little interesting piece of <laughs> trivia, but uh, on the front cover of Dragonfire, 
there are some initials etched oh, in the ice. Yes. TH, which is me. Oh, TH? There's an AH on one side over the doctor's umbrella and TH next to Ace. And that's because a friend of mine knew Alistair Pearson. I was going so, to say AJP is, um, uh, is it's snuck in there. Well, yeah, yeah, he, do, he does that. But yes. yeah, he would also, he would also, um, so in the ice cracks, there's a right. slight, slightly more prominent than the other cracks is a TH. That was, my, see, that was my first and only moment of legitimate Doctor Who fame. I'm, I'm going to have to <laughs> find a copy of this on eBay now and look this up. Have you not got it? probably have somewhere. You fill in the backstories with the books. Was yeah. that interesting to do? I'm trying to remember now. Uh, and prose, I mean, is, is because when you're writing scripts, mm. you know somebody's going to interpret them. When yes. you write prose, it's you. Yes. D- I mean, d- 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 so did you do that because it was lip service to the fact that you'd done a Doctor Who? Did it, was it, was it an interesting process or would you, are you more interested in, in, in stuff that is performed? Because they're very different disciplines, mm, aren't they? They're totally different. Well, not not totally different, but they are very different. Um, I found the the novel writing quite difficult because it's because there are more words. There's so many. Do you have any idea how many words there are in a forty thousand word novel? <laughs> the hell? Forty thousand words? Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's a hell of a lot of <laughs> yeah. um, It's... I think the challenge, as I recall, in writing the novels was... Because I, I think there are two ways of doing it. One is that you, you can kind of fill out as you're writing um, and kind of every line of dialogue, you can put an extra line or two of description with it, you know. His, his muscled body strode across the room as he snatched it, you know, whatever. Um, and I, I don't think I did too much of that because I found that, I found that a bit tedious. You know, I'm more interested in characters talking well, and doing. Well, you, you certainly, I think you fill in the backstory of Millington and Judson, for example. Yes, but I think... I think what, Millington was responsible for Judson being a wheelchair yes, user, for example. Yes, I, I took the opportunity in both of them, and especially in Fenric, to write more stuff, not to, so I, I'm, I'm trying to remember now, but I'm pretty certain that I didn't do much to um, Judson and Millington's dialogue or scenes together, but what I did was write an extra paragraph sort of in flashback and then go back to the scene so the the scenes were kind of fairly intact from the original script but I wrote additional things as well and that was I really enjoyed doing that especially in Fenric to to write write scenes of some of the unknown characters the um uh, the, the story of the the Viking who um, brought the, yeah. the, the treasure there in the first place, and to to do that in 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 the style of Norse saga. Why I thought it would be a good idea to put write several pages in the style of Norse saga is anybody's guess. <laughs> I, 
I think it's one of those, I've often thought if, if I were ever to write my autobiography, the title of it would have to be, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> um, and also to write a page of um, Bram Stoker's um, diary using the the fact that he, he also worked in the theatre and was touring around and blah 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 and so he ended up in this place and, and yeah. there were these stories and and I think that at the end of it he, he says something like this would make a great this is a great idea for a story um, and then we use bits of Dracula in the story itself uh, and also writing a coda at the end of it um, set of all places in the Jardin de Tuileries, I believe, in, in, in Paris, um, during the, the, the reign of Louis. Um, but I, li I liked doing those because they gave me the opportunity to tell other bits of the story. Um, actually, there was one... Ah, there's another, there's another bit, isn't there, about the trader who brings the flask from the Orient? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, all of those, and I think I also rounded out, I must have filled out quite a lot of characters. You did, yeah. It's a, I, it's a really character-driven I, I think I novel, fill, filled out some of um, uh, Miss Hardacre. Yeah. And yeah, things it explains like, why she's so... Yes. The, 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 the way that she is. Yes, that she 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 was stigmatised for getting carried away with youthful, youthful passion and things like that, and she's become bitter. And now, when she sees two girls doing it, obviously she's going to react the way she does. Yeah. Um, it's and it's a two-edged thing, which is she's both jealous of their ability to do it. And also, she knows from bitter experience what what can happen to them, and, and wants to protect them from it. So she wants to deprive them of it and protect them from it at the same time. So you know, uh, a more ambiguous character there. Mm. Um, yeah, definitely. So I, I, I remember enjoying doing that, enjoying having that opportunity. Well, and the direct opposite of that is, of course, you have total control over a book in in, in that sense. Mm -hmm. Is that you know what you write apart from an editor? Except I've just remembered the the after, after before it went to print, after I'd okayed it all, there was a grammatical error inserted in it. <gasps> yeah, and the thing is, <laughs> it, because I, I was I was then sent an advanced copy of, of, the, of the novel, and I read it through, and as soon as I read it. Um, it's at the end. It's in the it's in the postscript, um, and the doctor says he's talking to um, Ace, and he says, "Just like you and I." I'm like, no, just like you and me. That's what I wrote, and I went straight back and he says, yes, it says that. That's what it's so supposed they, to say. They changed it. it. It was changed badly, uh, and it was it was a crime against humanity. That. <laughs> but the thing is that I knew. I absolutely knew that my dad would notice that. I thought most people won't notice that because most people kind of don't appreciate that difference. But I thought my dad will notice that. And I gave him a copy of the novel 
and a couple of days later he phoned up and, and, he, and he said, it's very good, but you made a terrible grammatical error in that. <laughs> <laughs> and for years after that, because um, in those days I, I got invited to conventions and things like that, if anybody gave me a copy of The Curse of Fenric to, to autograph, I would manually cross out that word. <laughs> I'd find that better. I would cross it out and put the correct word in. <laughs> How funny. Well, look, I was going to ask you a question about Doctor Who, but actually... It, no, we've drifted into... The, the, no, the, this, the, this interests me. The and importance I, of good grammar. Well, uh, not that, actually. It was the fact you talked about your dad. Mm. Um, because much of what I write is, 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 is largely to... To, to, to please your father. Well, or, or to, or to <laughs> set records straight, or to do it's something. It's to please your father. Yeah. So, Trust me, it's to please your father. Well, tell me about that. <laughs> I write now you've brought father. it up. <laughs> we write to please our parents. Um, Is damage important to a writer, do you think? Psychological damage, childhood damage, childhood Because all trauma. your characters, are, what I love about mm. your characters is that they're damaged. Yeah, but if they weren't damaged... What would they do? They would just yeah. do the right thing at the beginning of the story. The story would be over. We all have the kind of quirks that, that come from childhood and later. That's just part of being a human being. You know, um, that's that's what drama comes from. Is taking ordinary human traits and pushing them to extremes. So Miss Hardacre, the kind of shame from having made a mistake in her past. We've all made mistakes and kind of feel bad about that. Cain, um, uh, uh, driven by desire for revenge. Well, you know, we all feel we've been hard done by in the past and you know, the, the number of times you know, that I've walked away from a, a situation for days afterwards, I've replayed that conversation, and <laughs> yeah. I've I've put them in you their place. Out. Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, we all do that. We don't all take over a space trading colony, have a statue built to, to uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. slaughter people left, right, and centre. Rule a freezer centre with a rod of iron. Exactly. Um, <laughs> some people do. Some some people. You know, they, they become bitter and twisted. Some people um, who've been really, really, really badly damaged um, in, in their earlier life, you know, they, they go on to become abusers themselves, mm. um, which is kind of appalling. But it's... Everyone need Everyone has that damage. And I think if you want to write... I think a lot of people have that damage and turn away from it and if you're a writer you have to be kind of interested in kind of the quirks of human beings and I think that means being interested and presumably to a certain extent at peace with, with your own quirks and, and, and damage but if, if a writer had if a writer became completely at peace with themselves, they would stop writing and make music instead. The fact that we continue to write means that there is still that little bit of grit in the oyster that 
you can make a pearl out of. So. And how do you do that... it practically as a writer then? Um, <laughs> uh, purely, you know, let's forget the creative side. Mm. As so, um, I mean, do you do you plan much, or is it a sort of stream of consciousness? So you're there with your typewriter bashing it out. Mm. I, I'm actually fascinated about how other writers do it. I I know how I do it, and in a way how I've, how I've changed over the years. I started. Um, when I was at university, when I was here, uh, not very far from where we're sitting now, mm. um, when I was writing stuff for student television, then I would I would work out I would work out what the story was in my head. I would work out what scenes that would break down into. I would work out how long the piece was going to be, and then I would work work out from that how many minutes long each scene would need to be. I would then do it on a piece of paper, which you know, kind of A4 paper, which I'll do into three columns. Each row would be 30 seconds, so a one-minute scene would be two lines. A two-minute scene would be four lines. Because, huh. because it was in three columns, that meant that each block was 10 seconds long. So I didn't... And this is something that Andrew learned from me, because uh, he must have written stories sequentially I didn't write stories sequentially because I could see then okay it's this scene then it's this scene then it's this scene then it's this scene this scene um, I could work on scenes in any order I liked and I didn't even have to write start with the beginning of the scene I, I could start with kind of the second minute of the scene or 30 seconds in or something like that um, but I would I would write tiny tiny small writing with, with a tiny fine tipped pen so that I could write 10, 10 seconds worth of it would just be kind of a fragment of dialogue or it would be an action or something like that um, which I thought would last about 10 seconds and then after I'd done all of that I would then write it all out longhand with pen and paper um, but in a way that was almost a rewrite of a first draft because you know I already had fragments of dialogue and it, you know, it was like a scene breakdown, but it was a bloody detailed scene breakdown because it had, you know, the bits of dialogue and, and the, the sure. actions in it there. Um, that morphed. Um, so when I was doing, by the time I was writing for um, um, Dragonfire, I had to write a, a story outline for those. You know, it, it needed two, three-page, whatever outline of the story because there had to be enough there for, for John to be able to say yes we go with this no we won't go with yeah. this um, uh, and by the by I just remembered that um, I, I was I remember on Dragonfire um, I, you know, I was going through all this kind of writing this and writing that and then because I was a first time writer I only got commissioned for the first episode not for the whole series uh, and and then it was kind of like write some more and you know you get your first half payment and when it's accepted you get your second half payment um, and there came a point where I'd, I'd actually written quite a lot I'd written kind of a first draft of all three episodes or something like that and I'd been paid for one of them and I was on the phone to Andrew and I said to him um, I don't want to be pushy but do, do you know when when anyone will actually make a decision about whether to go ahead with this story, you know, whether it will actually happen or not. 
and he said, Ian, you know that room opposite my office? If I look through the doors, there's a production team working on your programme. It's been in production for a week now. <laughs> I'm really sorry I didn't tell you that. <laughs> more from Ian next time. His charitable suggestion can take in a number of different organisations. So let me suggest Sightsavers, which is sightsavers.org. That's the website, sightsavers.org. They do some of the work that is uh, sort of encompassed by Ian's uh, remit in his charitable suggestion. He will explain it far better than I and he will do it at the end of the next episode. So if you want to hang on till then to listen to his reasons and it might take you to a different organisation, but Sightsavers are fantastic uh, and they do work uh, within the bounds of what he suggested. Um, I'm not being deliberately coy, I just think he explains it in a very interesting way. Um, thanks to Ian Atkins and to Paddy at Big Finish for facilitating this stuff as ever. There'll be another episode next week. I'm on Twitter and various other places and... Uh, Thanks for listening. Till next time. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Amy Jennings. David? Amy, will you marry me? David? thought you'd never ask. Dark Shadows. Bloodline.